Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the East End of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. And we are recording. And we are recording. How's everyone today? Seems like it's been a while Good. since we've been Good. together. It's been a while since we've been in the same room. I mean, really in the same room. I don't mean like on screen, same room. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's very strange. So. Everyone having a good week? Yeah, I had, I, I actually, <clears throat> I had a, a flu shot yesterday and uh, it was weird. I, I don't know if it was a reaction to the flu shot or flu shot or just something. I was like head chills all night. So I was kind of up, up and up and back and forth and asleep and awake with. Uh, well, it, it could be because it's sort of the Halloween it could season. Be. Maybe I was just spooked. Don't yeah. bury, don't bury the lead. You've got your flu, <laughs> shot. flu shot. That's the important part it. of this. Yes. Get your so, flu shot. so we're back again and uh, manning the controls as usual is Bill Sutton who just got his flu shot. And, hey, and I'm a little chilled, but yes. Hi, I'm Bill Sutton. I'm the managing editor of the Express News Group. Also here is Brendan J. O'Reilly. Hey, Brendan. Hi, I'm Brendan. I'm the features editor. And we also have Joe Shaw here. Hi, Joe. Hi, Annette. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor. I got my flu shot, by the way, already. You're good. I have not. I'm a net hang. Get it. I'm the unflu vaccinated arts and living editor, but I have other shots. So you don't have to worry about like, if I bite you, you'll be okay. Okay. Uh, Good to know. And also joining us today is David Falkowski, owner of Open Minded Organics. And David um, comes from a, a long line of farmers here on the East End. And he's also very involved in the cannabis issue and very up on what's going on. And a few weeks ago, we sort of threw out some things on our podcast. So David said, get me on the podcast. There's lots to talk about. So that's what we're, <laughs> that's what we're doing. And I am Joe, I know that you and David had a, a conversation earlier in the week. And um, I thought maybe if you wanted to jump in here and um, let's get David going and he can bring us up to speed on everything that we got wrong last time we talked about this subject. Yeah, there you go. We talked, uh, what, about a week ago, I think it was. And that uh, Q&A should be on the website and in the papers by the time uh, the podcast comes out. But uh, David, I got, I got you during, uh, I think it's awesome that I got you like just getting off the tractor, right? Literally. Yeah, closing up the fields for the season, you know, turning them over, cover cropping. It's a wrap. Just yeah. literally harvest the harvest time, basically. So it was it was yeah, literally just it was finished. a good time to catch you. But um, what we talked about is we're in we're in sort of an in-between period. I think there was sort of there, there's sort of a miss a misunderstanding that things have sort of slowed down because there isn't a lot of news coming out about cannabis in New York. But behind the scene, this is like the old thing they always say about the, the duck, that there's not, nothing happening above the water, but the legs are moving furiously below the water, right? That's, that's basically what's happening here. Exactly what's happening. Tell, tell us about what's happening exactly. right now with, uh, you know, essentially cannabis was legalized as far as possession, but there's a lot of work to do as far as setting up a framework to allow the sale the purchase and sale of cannabis products in New York. So tell us where we stand and, and just take it away. You know, you know what's going on. You have, sure. you have your finger on the pulse of this like, like nobody um, 
nobody else in the room right now. It's my job. <laughs> the uh, So we're going to do a quick little recap. Right? During uh, the Cuomo administration, they passed the MRTA, the Marijuana Regulation Taxation Act. Um, that is what, in fact, you know, legalized the possession, three ounces of marijuana in public, five pounds at your house, um, you know, authorized the formation of the Office of Cannabis Management. Um, but then there was uh, this time of stagnation. We needed these key appointees to the Cannabis Control Board, and he failed to do that. Uh, Hochul comes in, and within less than two weeks' time, she gets a couple key appointments to the board, and the whole thing starts to move. Uh, our Office of Cannabis Management, you know, run by the uh, Cannabis Control Board, they've had a couple of meetings now. Actually, the next meeting, I do believe, is Wednesday or Thursday. I think it's the 3rd, November 3rd. Um, if you go, if you Google uh, New York Office of Cannabis Management, uh, I I urge anybody interested in cannabis in New York State to check that website weekly, sign up for updates. Uh, so a couple of things have happened in the last meetings. Uh, one most important, the last one, uh, the board ap approved uh, whole smokable flour in the medical swim lane. So that's a big one. Previously, it was just like vape products, oils, tablets, maybe ground flour. So now people can buy marijuana flour and medicate. Uh, the last, that was two meetings ago. Those are the buds, right? Correct. Just marijuana as we typically know it. Uh, we've seen it bought and sold, whether it's legally or illegally. Um, now, as far as home cultivation goes, uh, they released for public comment uh, some guidelines for uh, medical patients, medical marijuana patients, to cultivate uh, marijuana plants at their home. Uh, there were in the process of a 60-day comment period after which uh, there'll be a little simmering time and hopefully those are approved. So hopefully the beginning of the year, uh, those uh, folks who have a prescription or a medical marijuana recommendation can grow their own medicine at home. Let me, Dave, let me ask you, can, can you grow at home right now? You cannot, whether you're a medical patient, adult use or whichever. Uh, as a matter of fact, there was a statement from the Cannabis Control Board um, that, that they made it very clear. There is no gray market in New York. You cannot buy a $65 t-shirt and give somebody some marijuana at the same time. You know, they made it clear that, you know, the only legal cannabis in the state, you know, which is taxed, that's an important word, but uh, is, is only being cultivated and dispensed through the medical marijuana swim lane. Um, we are expecting at this next meeting uh, here on November 3rd for them to release the much anticipated uh, hemp extract regulations. Uh, they passed this hemp extract uh, law back in 2019. And this is the space where I've been operating in. Um, and so we're hoping that uh, after multiple public comment periods and some uh, changes made to the regulations, uh, this will finally be released and become kind of de facto law of the land. Uh, this will regulate um, who can sell CBD products, who can uh, manufacture them, labeling requirements, et cetera. I think it's important because you mentioned it when we spoke that I think a lot of people misunderstood that and started cultivating marijuana at home <laughs> almost immediately thinking, well, it's legal to possess, so I should be able to grow it and, and began growing, uh, but that's not legal at the moment. Yeah, so to, to analyze your statement there, the MRTA is a law and a statute. Uh, that says you can have this. The regulations that we are awaiting, the adult use regulations, uh, we're hoping to have something by the end of the year, January. 
which are the guidelines which will let us know what the requirements are for licensing, uh, what the, the guidelines are. We do know in the statute, it says uh, the Cannabis Control Board has up to 18 months to uh, after the first adult use sales of flour to release regulations and guidelines for adult use home cultivation. So we're on the adult use side, we're way out there yet. On the medical side, though, we're like less than 90 days. Hopefully. Interesting. Yeah. On cultivation. Yeah. Dave, so the statistic that I had heard for home cultivation was if you're 21 or older, you could grow up to six plants at home for personal use. There could be three mature plants and three immature plants at a time for a single person. Or if you have a household of at least two people, you could have six mature, six immature. Um, so that's even on the, the cannabis.newyork.gov website. So is that on the books, but it's not applicable yet until the control board comes out with guidance? So that is what they're going to have to offer guidance around. And that guidance will be what kind of security measures will have to be taken, um, where, where this can be done. Are there any other limitations, et cetera? Um, so, you know, the law says you'll be able to do that, but until we have the regulations that say how we do that, um, and that's approved, you know, legislative process takes time, you know, they're going to release regulations just like they did in the, uh, the medical marijuana home cultivation swim lane, it goes for public review, they have to respond to the comments, it marinates, and then hopefully it gets published and, and we're off to the races and it becomes legal at that time. Um, so we are expecting adult use home grow, you know, recreational um, will look like that, right? Three and three, mature and mature, maximum of six and six. But it is not legal until the regulations are finally approved that authorize that. We're still waiting on the guidance. So I'm wondering, are the like out of out of state CBD producers? Has that been a, a challenge for you? And will that change to maybe your business model might be protected somewhat going forward, and that out of state entities won't be able to sell their product here? Sure. This has been a very unique challenge in the hemp and CBD space. So myself, since I started late 2017, 2018, I've been a, uh, you know, a, a research partner for New York State. That's the way we're authorized on the 2014 Farm Bill to both cultivate and manufacture hemp and CBD products. Uh, so I had to sign an agreement saying that there are certain things I can do and certain things I can't do. Uh, but meanwhile, because of the lack of federal regulation or other adopted laws in the state, uh, like the hemp extract bill that, that was three years ago now, and the regulations still haven't been approved, there was no enforcement and really no other laws. So for instance, uh, Delta-8, which is a converted, uh, you know, an isomer, it's a converted uh, cannabinoid, synthetic in fact, uh, to this point in time, I do not know any company that is immediately extracting it in bulk from the plant material. It's, it's a conversion. They're converting other cannabinoids like CBD to Delta-8. Uh, it's an intoxicating compound, yes, hemp-derived, and you can find it in just about every gas station. But guess what? Open-Minded Organics, being a research partner with the state, is forbidden from manufacturing or selling that product. Uh, so this is just like one of many examples. Now, when the hemp extract uh, regulations are approved, there's things in there that will hopefully finally level the playing field. So for instance, we at Open Eye Organics, we're CGMP audited uh, for dietary supplement manufacturing. These are federal guidelines. Uh, our first audit last year, we scored a 98. This year, we scored a 99. Can't do any better without the auditor getting yelled at. So 
when these regs are passed, every product that's produced anywhere in the country to be sold in New York will have to meet those guidelines. Um, so I've personally, I feel like uh, many of the folks like myself who are trying to do right in New York state have been kind of face masked while they're allowing, you know, the rest of the out-of-state interests and in many cases in-state to kind of flank us and get a bit of a head start. Um, so it's, it's been very challenging. Just to clarify too, the Delta 8 stuff, that sort of lives in a gray area, doesn't it, legally? it's Currently, yes. It's a hemp product but it's intoxicating sort of in the same way as, as marijuana products are, uh, cannabis products are. Um, so the, there isn't really a law outlawing that they found sort of a loophole for now, correct? That it is. So suppose you, you grow hemp, you isolate some CBD out of there. That CBD is chemically and environmentally manipulated and it converts over to this Delta-8 isomer, which becomes now an intoxicating compound. Since it is thusly hemp derived, there's that gray area. But at the end of the day, it's an intoxicating compound, and uh, you know it's a little bit of a you know misconception, especially when the message is about hemp products. You know how they're relatively benign, etc. Uh, several states have actually explicitly either banned uh, the the sale and manufacture of Delta Eight, or uh, it's actually maybe anticipated by some of us that Delta Eight will maybe move into the medical and adult use swim lanes. Uh, because it's an intoxicating compound, uh, maybe that there won't be an all-out ban on it, but uh, most likely will be removed from the ability just to be sold with minimal oversight, uh, you know, at a, at a gas station or a CBD shop. So is this something that is, is vaped? Is it a vape product or how is it ingested? Uh, it's, it's another novel cannabinoid. So just like CBD can be put in a gummy, chocolate, vape, or an oil, THC can be done the same. I'm sure a lot of folks who are listening to this have made a trip up to Massachusetts by now. It's you know, not too far over. So you can find THC in all those forms. Delta H, just another novel cannabinoid that can pretty much be formulated in any of those other common forms. Is it safe? So safety is a subjective term, right. right? So, I mean, when we talk about the FDA and, you know, when we look at for articles on PubMed and empirical science, you know, the verdict's going to be there's really no, you know, scientific studies. Okay. One other side of safety would say, uh, you know, a lot of cannabis products go through rigorous testing, especially, you know, when they're run through state compliance programs. So like every batch of hemp extract CBD oil that I release uh, for human consumption that we sell, uh, it's a several hundred dollar full panel that checks, you know, for cannabinoid concentration, heavy metals, resistible solvents, salmonella, et cetera, like a, a very broad panel of food safety and health concerns. That's every batch. Now, when you go to a, a gas station, I don't mean to single out gas stations, it's just an easy, uh, relatable place. You're, you're generally not going to find that kind of information or traceability with these products. Uh, and on top of that, uh, the general public's conception that since it's hemp derived, it's not intoxicating. Uh, if anybody knows about us, you know, we're at the farmer's markets, we have our farm stand, we have the Omo, the apothecary in Sag Harbor, and not a week goes by at this point where we have people coming in basically reporting an adverse reaction, like, wow, you know, they sold me this because they said it would help for, with sleep, but we did not realize we would be whacked out. Uh, and in some cases, people have wound up very uncomfortable. Now, I'm not saying that's necessarily dangerous for their health, unless maybe they think they're taking a CBD product and getting in a car, uh, et cetera. So, you know, when we talk about safe, um, these are not generally regulated and or rigorously tested products. 
I was going to say Delta eight is just not in your wheelhouse at all. Right. Cause it's not organic and it's, it's really a manufactured product. Um, chemically, chemically manufactured. Um, I, I have respect for all cannabinoids derived from the cannabis plant, but really my scope of work in, in, in plant medicine, Delta eight does not appeal to me at this time. Um, I, I really find it a, an exploited angle and I get it. I'm not going to begrudge people, you know, trying to figure out how to make their way in this industry. But, uh, you know, my, my work and not my occupation, but my work as a human being here really has been, you know, to help bring medicine to the people in the planet. And I think CBD and THC and other naturally occurring cannabinoids that are found in the plant, uh, in, in products that represent the plant essence. Um, so Delta eight's not for me at this time. Is, is most of this Delta 8 being made out of the state, would you say? Uh, yes. Largely, a lot of this is being made out of state. Uh, there's even speculation um, that the whole Delta 8 thing is largely what's kind of shouldering um, a, a collapsing CBD industry. You know, so a lot of, there was a lot of overproduction of hemp, a lot of overproduction of CBD isolate. And uh, a lot of these labs are drawing off of those stores. You know, so it'd be interesting for somebody to do some investigative reporting uh, some analytics on like how much you know CBD is actually being converted into Delta Eight and being sold. As a matter of fact, I think it would be a, a great question for a reporter to ask. You know, a handful of quote CBD shops, vape shops, gas stations. How much CBD uh, dominant products versus Delta Eight are they actually even selling? It dominates the market right now. You know, Dave, um, one of the interesting parts of our conversation uh, is about the local governments and the decisions that they have to make now about whether or not they're opting out of allowing the sale or at least maintaining the option of not allowing the sale, the, the retail sale of, of products locally. Um, you had made a really interesting point, I thought, about that, which is that if, you know, there have been some of the villages have already voted to opt out. And you're saying that that's going to have a significant impact on not just you, but on the way that local farmers benefit from this, from this legalization. It, it really is going to block you out of a market and allow multinational corporations to step in. Talk a little bit about that. Sure. So, Remember, when this whole opt-out thing is just about having, uh, say, dispensary retail sites located within a municipal boundary, within towns, villages, and cities, um, they cannot prohibit the, the cultivation or manufacturing of products. As I understand it, they cannot prohibit delivery services based out of other municipalities delivering into the one where they've opted out of brick-and-mortar retail sales dispensary. That's interesting. Uh, they cannot opt out of possession and these new laws. They cannot opt out of home grow medical in the adult use in the medical swim lane, as I understand it. Uh, I do understand that, you know, there is room for regulation. So we really need to acknowledge this really is like a zoning issue. Um, I, a couple of things here. One, I personally feel when a municipality opts out, it's really kind of an, an ostrich head in the sand kind of situation. So if you're not going to participate in a program you're just not in that slipstream of knowledge and progression and things are moving very fast. And if you're choosing not to participate, 
Um, how are you going to know what programs are becoming available, let alone, you know, the, the, we talk about tax money. I don't always want it to be about money, but if you're not participating in these programs for harm reduction, uh, knowing about, you know, age restrictions and all of these other things, uh, you know, you ask me, I mean, more harm can be done than, than good. Now, as far as farmers and locals and all of this, so if, if I'm born and raised here in Bridgehampton, I graduated Southampton High School in 95. Suppose Southampton Town and Southampton Village, they opt out, right? This whole area. These are all the people I know. So, okay, Dave and Open Eye are organics. You know, we're going to continue to cultivate and manufacture cannabis products. I know all of the contacts I have locally here, my customer base, I'm now locked out of that. And so what's going to happen are people in other areas and largely these MSOs, these multiple state operators, uh, or other, you know, such investors who just happen to have more resources, they're going to shop around, they're going to post up on the outsides of our municipalities, and they're going to access these markets. Um, and so it really diminishes the resources of locals here. Um, I really think at this point, when, when arguments are made uh, that, you know, there's, there's no direction coming from the state, um, there's nobody to ask answers. Now that we have a functioning cannabis control board, there's meetings, uh, regulations are obviously eventually coming. Now is the time for everybody to start paying attention, formulating questions, establishing relationships, and let's start to figure out how we address these issues. Because when I hear the argument, well, what are we going to do about all the people driving around stone? Well, I say, what are you doing about it now? Because I can guarantee in Southampton town, there's well over a hundred people or more driving around who have consumed cannabis this morning. And so it's not like we're talking about things that are happening in the future. We're, we're looking to take something that's unseen, that's illicit, illegal, unregulated, untested, and we're looking to turn it towards the sunlight so we can address these issues. People will say, well, huh, what about the kids getting marijuana? Well, remember, read the MRTA. You know, there's, there's age limits. You know, these stores, they're like, imagine like a, a liquor store, except with even more security protocols with even more traceability and accountability. You know, an, a 16-year-old kid is not going to be walking in an adult-use marijuana dispensary and, and buying cannabis. You know, when, when these products right now, they're being sold in parks, cars, people's living rooms. So when they say we don't want a dispensary in our town, we need to accept the fact, again, in Southampton Town, there's probably a, a hundred or more dispensaries. And I'm using a polite word for a drug dealer. And uh, hey, we're all people of the world. And at least everybody on this call right now is an adult. And knows that drug dealers, if they're selling pot, there's a high likelihood that there's other compounds that they're dealing with. That's so important. That's a really good point. So this really comes down to harm reduction. And so I think it's, it's, it's not very progressive to, to opt out of something when really we're just talking about opting in the opportunity to solve the issues that concern us as a community. Amityville's vote, it's going to be in the past by the time people listen to this, but that was scheduled for November 2nd. Uh, I don't know how that's going to go, but if the public votes yes on it, then the villages opt out of cannabis dispensary stands. If a majority of residents vote no, then they will be able to have cannabis dispensaries in Amityville. As far as I could tell, each village on the east end has elected to opt out unless you, you would know if there's any exceptions to that. So I've heard, let's see, West Hampton Village, right? I do believe uh, Shelter Island was early on. And so we need to understand the context of Shelter Island. When the conversation came up, it's a very small community. Nobody was there saying, hey, well, you know what? I'd like to have a dispensary. Let's talk about this. So, I mean, they virtually said, hey, let's just close this out and move along. 
Uh, somebody like, uh, you know, West Hampton Beach Village, uh, they obviously felt uh, that it was not part of the character of their municipality. That's understandable. But as I understand it also, it's not like there was a big public notification that might have drawn in interested parties. Um, to my understanding, you know, Southampton Village, it was something very similar when it came up for vote. Uh, I think there was only one person in attendance that actually spoke pro, you know, adult use marijuana. So when we, I, I think we're at a fault to say that the public is generally being represented here. Um, so as I understand it also, there's this public referendum option. So uh, as I understand it, a village can put the opt-out directly onto a ballot, on the backside of a ballot, you know, just like we would say, hey, are we gonna approve to buy another fire truck or something? Uh, but a town, and I think a city as well, um, we would have to go out and get like 10% of the gubernatorial vote. Um, so if Southampton Town right now, or say East Hampton Town decided they wanted to opt out, somebody like myself, during you know the the back end of a pandemic here is going to have to run around to get thousands of signatures, just so the general public can actually have their opinion voiced here. Um, I mean it's a great tool, but at the same time I think all of these issues can be addressed through zoning. Uh, there's going to be vetting processes, just like liquor licenses being issued. You know I mean there's character references, there's a back and forth process. You know, only a handful of dispensaries, as I understand it, will be established in each uh, in each district. Um, so it's not like we're going to be flooded with 50 shops uh, in, in each town. You know, I think think those who are elected to represent us and to be prudent and do their due diligence, I think they need to stop and actually just take an afternoon in their busy schedule to read through the MRTA to truly understand its spirit and not just hear from an advisor, but to read the document themselves uh, before they get back up and speak publicly about it again. You know, this is a once, not even a generation, but like a lifetime opportunity, a once in a hundred years opportunity for, for human beings. And uh, this should not be taken lightly. But Dave, let me be clear. The, the municipalities that opt out, they have the option of doing a 180 later, do they not? They do, but Again, I think all of us have been around long enough to know it's a lot easier to pass a law than to repeal it. I, I, I could not even imagine what the process would be like dragged out in the public eye to repeal an opt-out saying, we want to have this. I mean, it would just be like a war on witches in, in, in Salem. Um, it's, it would be much more difficult of a process. There's going to be a timing issue, though, too, because once all this comes into play and these dispensaries start opening, the villages uh, or towns that, that opt out, I, I mean, they're, they're, they're not going to have these dispensaries. They're gonna be set up in, in other places. And like you said, it's not like if they reverse course, there's gonna be a hundred more dispensaries coming in. They'll already be in place in, in other spots, right? They will, uh, but just like alcohol, there's a demand for these products. This market is way bigger than I think most you know, folks on the East End are thinking, unless they're part of it. I think also there's a lack of awareness of the interest from out-of-state and institutional investors, these MSOs mm. and brand owners. So what happens is when we opt out as, as a local community, we're just diminishing resources of locals. The others will wait. The others have time and money. But those of us in New York who are right here right now at the precipice of, of legalization and an opportunity in this legal market, it's really kind of now or never. Things move so fast. 
uh, and they're super expensive. And again, that's why I keep bringing this back to, this is all about zoning and the resources and, the, and not diminishing those of locals. And the, the elephant in the room here, Dave, is that Riverhead Town has agreed that they are going to participate in sales. And the Shinnecock Nation is not going to, to be bound by any of the uh, opting out at the local level. So there will be retail uh, marijuana uh, cannabis options locally. It's not going to stop that sale from happening. So I, it, you know, it, it's, I find it really fascinating that, that if a village, for instance, if Southampton Village or Southampton Town, which hasn't made a decision yet, if they would decide to opt out, it really does just sort of take a chunk out of the local producers who are trying to, to take advantage of, of this new opportunity, which is at, at the heart of this is also about uh, bolstering, you know, uh, an agricultural effort as well. Correct. And as I understand it, uh, Southampton town, um, I do believe in, uh, in a meeting I had, uh, they're working on zoning and regulations for at least, uh, you know, medical marijuana dispensaries here. So now this is my opinion. We all know everybody's got opinions and they all stink. Uh, but in my opinion, <laughs> the way a lot of it's going, you know, I, I think there's a lot of, in all these towns and villages, especially on the town level and the city level, there's a lot of, well, hey, what's so-and-so or what's the other town doing? So there's, don't get me wrong, villages, I mean, they're impactful, but I think they're kind of defaulting. I think Southampton Town um, is likely going to wind up not opting out. Um, I, I think, you know, behind the scenes, you know, they're, they're working on things. And uh, unless there's a big push from either side, uh, I expect this thing to sundown in, in December here on 31st for that deadline. Hmm. I was curious, too, like with the, with the Shinnecock Nation, are they exempt from collecting taxes? taxes on any marijuana they sell and um you know is that sort of probably the state's not going to be particularly happy if that's the case right you know these these are very good important and big questions but it's going to be a wait and see uh are the entities that are going to operate on the sovereign ground of the shinnecock nation going to hold state licenses um you know we all know well we don't all know but it's it's a very complex relationship, you know, federally recognized tribes have within the states that sometimes they happen to exist within the, the boundaries thereof. I think what I've heard, uh, and I don't want to, I don't, maybe shouldn't attempt to speak for the Shinnecock in this, but I think what I've heard is that they're going to sort of follow the lead of New York State and, and follow whatever the state decides and, and wait on those, but they don't think they have to. Um, I think they think that they have the right to do whatever they choose to do sort of now, but they're sort of doing it. Uh, they're they're going to be willing to follow the state's lead um, voluntarily, I think is what's happening. You know, I, I think maybe a good place to find this answer, obviously, besides maybe contacting somebody directly at the tribe uh, to look at Tilt Holdings, right? They're uh, a multi-state operator. Uh, they operate out of Massachusetts also. Um, so they're the ones who signed the management agreement with the tribe. Uh, so you might be able to get a straight answer from them saying, hey, look, are, are, is it your anticipation, you know, to pull uh, a New York State uh, medical license, become an RO, a registered organization? Or is it your, your intention, you know, to become uh, an, a licensed adult use operator? And 
those taxes, that's an important thing because taxes are going to make up a big line item on the ticket. And uh, it's, it's going to be a big issue. Dave, is that a leaf blower? He's laughing. So Dave, <laughs> we're going to have to have you back when we do our all leaf blower podcast, because if, if you're a frequent listener, you know how often we talk about yeah. leaf blowers on this podcast. And when you have five people in a Zoom room on the East End, at least one of them <laughs> is going to have a leaf blower outside their window. Of course, Dave is a farmer. That could be any number of farm implements <laughs> going on in the background. Is it a leaf blower, Dave? Yeah, no, it, it's a leaf blower. It might I even see. be two of them. That's what it is. No, traveling pairs, safety in numbers. <laughs> That's right, because they never come by. They're never found single. Always in pairs. The, the one homeowner is blowing the leaves onto the other guy's right. lawn, and then that guy's blowing <laughs> them back. I've threatened to stand at the edge of my driveway with a leaf blower and just blow things back at people. Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. In these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel, be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com 27 Speaks, brought to you by Sag Harbor Books and Southampton Books. Independent bookstores located in the villages at 7 Main Street in Sac Harbor and 16 Hampton Road in Southampton. Carrying a wide selection of new books, stationery, toys, games, first editions, and rare books. Their entire inventory is browsable on the website, SouthamptonSagHarborBooks.com. Now hiring booksellers at both locations. So I was curious, Dave, as far as what you're hoping to be able to do in the future, what would the ideal situation be for your business and how would it expand with the new marijuana regulations coming on board? And so there is this micro license um, where that's something that interests me possibly that allows us to cultivate, manufacture and retail our products, but it's only your own. And so that can be very limiting at the same time, it creates an opportunity. So all these things, um, so behind the scenes, I, I sit as the Long Island Committee Chairman for the New York Cannabis and Growers Processors Association. Uh, there's, there's many committees. It's a very diverse group. Um, I've had a couple, geez, I've had four or five Zoom calls, You know, two of them today, and we're discussing many different things, which include licensing, what manufacturing, co-packing looks like, submitting white papers and recommendations to the, the Office of Cannabis Management. So Right now, uh, back to, to Joe's analogy of the duck looks, you know, calm and smooth on the surface, but man, those feet underwater out of sight, um, it's, it's a thousand miles a minute here. You know, we're all seeking, you know, clarity on how all of this works. Because um, a lot of this is just empty words on the paper, like a micro license. It's just mentioned in the MRTA a handful of times. That's just about it. There's no other guidance at this time. So Dave, can you give us an educated guess on a timeline about when things start might start to fall into place and we might start to see retail shops opening, things like that. Sure. So we're really hoping end of the year, January, we start to see some adult use regulations presented, proposed. There was a bill called the Kumi bill that was passed um, before the Cannabis Control Board was sat that suggested by the end of the year, if there was no functioning Cannabis Control Board, um, that provisional licensing could occur. So 
if the state and some sort of initiative moves forward and we have provisional licensing, it would be amazing to see plants in the ground next spring uh, and maybe if at least in a limited capacity, some manufacturing and dispensaries opening uh, in the fall of 22. But in, in all reality, if that really doesn't work out, um, I mean, we're all analyzing the situation. It really could be as far as 2023. Um, now keep in mind, you know, this is the adult use swim lane. So just like they're developing these regulations and there may well be like a, a patchwork of this stuff being released, um, you know, it's perceived that, you know, this is a big bump to the ROs and the medical marijuana swim lane where, hey, for a hundred to $200 and a backache, you can go get your medical marijuana recommendation, you know, go down to one of these, uh, you know, medical dispensaries and you can now buy whole flour and everything else. So people can find access to legal regulated and tested products but as far as the adult use stuff, 50% um, chance of it happening in 2022, but in all reality, likely by this time in 2023, you know, we should have had a full cultivation season, licensing open up where we can have some manufacturing dispensaries now receiving product. Let me ask you a question, Dave. You're, you're coming, you've been a cannabis activist, you've, you're, you're an advocate, and you talk about the health benefits and you obviously focus on the organic side of it. How do you parse that with the intoxication aspect of it? Is, is the legalization of cannabis about broadening, it, from your perspective, is it about broadening the use of marijuana in a constructive way? Or is it about acknowledging that there is this recreational use and it's important to bring it under control. What, what, what is the legalization about from your, from your point of view? I think most importantly, it's harm reduction and it's gonna address all of the avenues you just mentioned from a wellness, lifestyle and recreational perspective. Obviously the focus of my work, uh, we are a wellness company um, and, and I truly believe, you know, humans have been using this plant for thousands of years uh, and to self-medicate. I mean, so many people are self-medicating now. A lot of people are finding that this is an off-ramp to opioids and Xanax and, and other drugs. But some people really love their cannabis concentrates and want to get blown out of their mind. And that's fine. I mean, there's isopropyl alcohol that's sold at CVS, or you can go to the refrigerated section and you'll get a six-pack of Sam Adams. But most importantly, this is about harm reduction this is about testing things, having regulations so people don't wind up with adverse reactions, kind of like what's happening in the gray area of Delta-8 and hemp products and perception. So we're seeking clarity. We're seeking to reduce harm. And, uh, you know, also it seems like maybe there'll be some cash flow going into the tax coffers as well. But it's all, you have to consider it all, all aspects of it. And it also tries to make up for a history of punishing at-risk communities that maybe more so than other communities and, and setting some of the records straight on that and, and getting rid of some of that discriminatory practices, I guess. You know, and Bill, really, thank you for bringing this up. You know, it's been a very kind of like serious factual conversation, but the spirit of the MRTA really sp speaks a lot to social equity applicants, to your point, communities and peoples that have been disproportionately affected by the war on drugs. And tying together to my point, when it comes to diminishing resources of locals, these are the people and the communities we're trying to level up and give a shot at in this industry. By opting out, you know, social equity, these, this, this challenge that you know, the state regulars have 
put before us, really no other states have really found much success with this. Like New York, we're in uncharted waters to do amazing things, but we really need all of us on board. Um, otherwise, it really seems that, you know, this illicit industry yeah. is now just going to be given to the haves because they have the money to navigate the regulation. They have the money and the resources to stave off a waiting game and just move one town line over where it's really, you know, the, the people and the locals here, we, many of us, the only resources we have are here where we live. And, uh, and there's opting out is really almost like opting out of, you know, our ability to address this, the social equity concerns uh, that are discussed at great lengths uh, in the MRTA. So I was wondering, are there, are there states that you think are a really good model, like Massachusetts or Colorado, or is anybody doing this in a way that you think New York should really emulate us in terms of regulating or how they run the business model? Sure. So this is a really good question. Uh, every state has good things and not so good things going, right? So like California, for instance, has like the lowest municipality participation for retail dispensaries, right? I mean, it's only like a few percent of municipalities. And uh, even though they have like a, it's now starting to catch up like a, a growing uh, legal retail market, the, the black market is, is just so powerful and pervasive out there. Um, you know, we look at uh, states like Massachusetts um, who, who seem to have a pretty, you know, mellow rollout. Obviously the world hasn't ended, you know, the college kids aren't, you know, crashing out, flunking out of school, you know, uh, marijuana related car deaths haven't skyrocketed, right? Um, but at the same time, we really haven't seen much success or movement uh, in addressing the whole social equity applicants area. Um, as a matter of fact, I, I do have a document and I invite anybody to, to reach out to me at any time. It is entitled uh, Local Impacts of Commercial Cannabis. Uh, it was published by the ICMA, uh, which is a, an organization that many municipalities refer to. It's the International City County Management Association uh, and they've aggregated uh, this report um, from several states uh, and, and addressed and you know, very clearly uh, reported the impacts uh, in an objective form. So there's a lot of information and data out there, but to your point, New York is really an uncharted territory and we have this one time to, to walk this invisible path and get things right. I'd love if you'd share that document with me, Dave. Yeah, no, it'd be uh, my pleasure to share it with you uh, with the hopes that uh, it gets disseminated into the communities, to our legislators, regulators, et cetera. You know, this is the information they need to see. We're not the first ones doing it. We may be creating something new and unique, but we're not the first ones to, to be set up to try and tackle this challenge. I have to tell you, I just happened to have come back from Colorado and it, I was sort of curious and, and um, while I was there, I thought I would sort of pay attention. I noticed nothing out of the ordinary in Colorado. There, there certainly, there certainly were. Um, there was an availability, but but it's not like it's it's ubiquitous. Like people think it might become. Um, even in New York City, just recently we were in the city, and yeah, you there are people who are now smoking pot on the streets in New York City from time to time. But it's not as prevalent as I thought it would be, and. Uh, Ditto in Massachusetts a year or so ago. I don't think, I, I think that the, uh, the wave of change that people think that legalization is gonna bring, um, I'm not sure it's as significant as people think. I, it'll be interesting to watch up close when it, when it comes to us locally, but 
I, I had, don't see great changes in society in those places that have legalized it and, and lived with it for a couple of years. It's, uh, it, it's a very good point that is made. Um, hopefully the document I just shared with you, you know, uh, mirrors that sentiment. And this seg segues into you know, one of my points I bring up with, with the municipalities. We need to start addressing now, you know, assessing, do we need more DREs, drug recognition experts? Do we need to look at our uh, local smoking guidelines? You no. Know, so the state and the MRTA tied, you know, smoking marijuana outdoors to cigarettes and vaping. So anywhere you can smoke a cigarette. So, you know, this isn't about opting out of people having marijuana in their communities. You know, this is really about regulatory and zoning issues. And, uh, you know, to your point, Joe, I mean, you know, we're going to have to sort out a few things here you know, on the local levels. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I doubt, you know, the sky is going to fall, you know, and as a matter of fact, um, there's a whole new cannabis culture that has yet to be realized because, you know, many people are in the closets. I mean, not a day goes by now when people come to you, even like close friends, like I've been growing for, for 10 years or, you know, don't let your mom know. One of my mom's friends, you know, like, oh yeah, you know, I've smoked pot forever. You know, sorry, mom, if you're listening, but you've got, you got quite a few friends who've come to me in confidence. So the studies that you've looked at, Dave, that are in states that have made it legal, does it indicate whether making cannabis legal increases the number of cannabis users or is it just making it more available to people who, who use cannabis to your, to your point that, you know, there's, there's this culture out there of people who've just used it quietly for, for years. I think that might be one, you know, one of the fears. Sure. To be objective, I, I would be a fool to say anything different. Of course, making something available. Um, is always going to increase its its use and consumption. But how that actually looks like compared to how many people are actually going to report that they're doing it now. Um, so these are very difficult numbers to quantify. Uh, but again, to be objective, there's definitely a lot of folks that have come to me saying, hey, all right, you know, I've always been very conservative on this issue. I'm on the sidelines. But at the same time, I mean, what is cannabis use? Because you know, Joe, you were saying it before, you know, that there's a lot of different facets. I mean, to be honest, a lot of folks, they want just maybe more help with sleep because maybe a CBD mm -hmm. or hemp product didn't do it. And that's why they tried a Delta 8 product. But really, at the end of the day, maybe they just need a little bit more THC and it's not impairing their ability uh, to function uh, as a human being. As a matter of fact, getting a better night's sleep might even make them a better person. Um, you know, some people um, might want just a, a legal vape product because all their friends drink and, and they don't want to drink. And so what if they have a puff or two of a, of a THC product? Um, they get a little giggly and socially comfortable, but they're hanging out with friends who just polished off the third bottle of wine. So it's really, I know we talk about users and maybe a net increase or whichever, but you know, a lot of people, it, it's just going to become more normalized. I, I really just don't want to demonize the way we look at these statistics because uh, again, to the, the point of, you know, it's an off-ramp or an unload or a medicine to a lot of folks. And as you said, it replaces anxiety medication in a lot of cases. And anxiety medication is wildly overprescribed at the moment. So it, it's, it may be replacing other harmful substances that just happen to be prescriptions. That is, uh, that is very true. It's one of the many tools, you know, in, uh, in nature's treasure chest. Uh, and I think uh, in another year or two, uh, after the dust is settled here with the cannabis space, uh, 
these very uh, heated conversations, very inspirational and passionate. We're going to be talking about psilocybin and, and, and microdosing and all this other stuff. Again, not a day or a week goes by without this coming up in a casual conversation with people asking about these things. And it just speaks to a sentiment. People want change. You know, we kind of have to let go of that tight, crusty old lobster shell. We're going to be sensitive and vulnerable and uncharted territory. But if we really want to grow and expand, um, I, I think, you know, the zeitgeist, the, the, the human psyche right now, you know, there's this consciousness that they want to move forward. And even if some people are saying that they're conservative on it, I think deep down inside, you know, they all want to see change. They all want to see options because likely they have mental health issues in the family or in their social circles or chronic pain issues. And at this point, I'm sure all of us within one, no more than two degrees of separation have had, you know, opioid issues. Um, and it's not even about opioid abuse anymore. It's in, it's in casual recreational drugs like cocaine and, you know, fentanyl's even winding up now in some edibles like THC edibles. I've heard reports up in Rochester. Oh, you know, so we want to see change. And this is what happens. This is about harm reduction. This is about legitimizing people. Um, and this is about resources and, and, and local communities here, first and foremost, helping people. So Dave, have you lobbied, have you lobbied the local municipalities at all and spoken to people at the town or village level about this issue? Yeah, sure. I mean, I've definitely uh, participated uh, in, a, in a board meeting in Southampton Town by invitation. Ironically, I was brought in to do a 360 conversation with Ken Lauby of Hugs over at the West Hampton Beach Village. I had no idea about their vote or other subsequent conversations. Uh, I've had private conversation with folks over in East Hampton Town um, as part of the, the Long Island Committee for the uh, NYCGPA. Um, you know, there was, uh, we kind of have like a street team. So there's, there's a uh, you know, committee members who are members of the association is kind of just, you know, people who are uh, interested private citizens. I'd like to think that we're very much involved in the process over in Riverhead, uh, you know, to make sure that, you know, there's uh, opportunities uh, for, you know, local citizens there uh, by them choosing not to opt out. So I've definitely been part of the process in many different ways. Dave, this past spring, Columbia Care purchased for $42.5 million, a 34-acre property in Jamesport. They say it's going to be one of the largest operating greenhouses on the East Coast. So I'm sure you're familiar with all this. But when I look at yep. this and I think about how I perceive the North Fork now, the North Fork is a lot of vineyards. And then there's farms producing food. And then on the South Fork, we have uh, fewer vineyards. We have many places producing food. But marijuana is a cash crop. Are we going to see low-performing vineyards get turned into marijuana cultivation greenhouses over the next few years to feed the demand in Manhattan? Are we going to see that on the South Fork? So I think there's a couple different ways to look at this. One, it didn't happen with the hemp and CBD craze. Two, what we did learn doing that is cultivating cannabis outdoors on the East Coast and specifically Long Island, which is a finger right out into the bay and the ocean, the humid outdoor climate, the proclivity for storms in the fall during harvest. This is not a very hospitable climate to cannabis. To your point, as far as it like being indoor and greenhouses, et cetera, there's a couple more considerations there. One, you know, the state, they definitely are going to keep their hand on the pulse and the eyes on the metrics here. Um, they're definitely going to want to make sure we don't wind up with overproduction and diversion. You know, so as a matter of fact, as I hear it and I understand it, the first year in the adult use cannabis space, they're estimating they're gonna need a supply of about 1 million pounds of cannabis flour for the adult use market. So when they issue licenses, you know, which are gonna be throughout the state, 
you know, they're not all going to be just located in Suffolk County. As a matter of fact, you know, when we look at Suffolk County, the North Fork, the South Fork, uh, we already have labor issues. We have the highest uh, electricity rates uh, in the state. So I wouldn't expect all of this to convert over. Um, you know, th there are going to be a finite amount of licenses. There are going to be a finite amount of products that are going to be uh, sold. Um, it's definitely something folks would want to look at, but there's not going to be multiple, um, you know, large facilities. We do hope to see, though, numerous small craft growers, you know, throughout the region. And, and as I've been saying this through the, the, the CBD and the hemp program, I, I call it like an unconventional subsidy. I think it's a great way for a farmer like myself who is struggling after 20 years to transition my business. Once again, things change here on the East End. I, I grow great food that's clean, grown with love. The majority of the time, certified organic. We're at farmer's markets. We help educate people about these issues, but it's, it's, it's a growing challenge these days to continue to do that. And if I can find a way to supplement, you know, my farming activities with our, our manufacturing, a small cultivation, I'll continue to do to retail, I think it does a lot to support struggling farms. Um, I, I don't think all of them are innately going to be taken over with these big organizations, a la Columbia Care and the Vander Wedding property. As a matter of fact, yeah, I doubt the state's going to allow them to use that entire property for, you know, flowering canopy space. You know, Dave, there, there's a real crucial point to make here, though, too, which I, correct me if I'm wrong. But as long as the federal government has in place uh, and a policy that that makes it illegal to transport marijuana over state lines, you say the, the state's going to need a million pounds of marijuana flour. They're not going to be able to get that from out of state. Right. And, and that complicates the whole process as well. It does, but it also creates an amazing opportunity. Right. I mean, every time somebody complains, there's an opportunity and. We're acknowledging this as a, as a New York Cannabis Growers Process Association, where we're building a supply chain. You know, we're creating a new industry with a multitude of nodes for economic opportunity. And so it's inevitable. The, the feds will eventually, you know, undo the prohibition on cannabis. Once that happens, and depending on how it rolls out, I mean, imagine if right now, I mean, Oregon, uh, they've declared a state of emergency, right? They can't control the amount of illicit marijuana that's been produced there. What would happen if six months from now, all of a sudden the Fed say, okay, we've ended prohibition. We're going to put a 25% tax on it and can move intrastate or interstate. Um, the New York industry would never get off the ground. Because it would be flooded. It would be flooded with marijuana from other parts of the country where it's already being grown. That's your point. Correct. So it's in, in my opinion, I'd really love to see every state have at least two years a sovereign opportunity where they build their own supply chain and industry should they choose uh, the way New York is, you know, before that opens up. And to that point, federally, I'd love to see first and foremost banking reform. You know, right now, this is largely a cash business. That's interesting. You can go down the rabbit hole there. Some of this cash uh, has to be driven across state lines because there's only so many uh, uh, like uh, credit unions and stuff that may bank marijuana stuff. And in some states, uh, if they seize cash, you know, there's uh, these forfeiture programs. So if it comes from a legitimate business where, say, adult use of medical marijuana is legal in one state, but you have to traverse a state that doesn't have it, and they're interpreting the federal letter of the law, but you're trying to get to the bank over here who will bank you, but they're seizing hundreds of thousands of dollars in between. I mean, it's mind-boggling. Wow. You know, As the Eagles said, you have to carry weapons because you're always carrying cash. 
So now, now you've got weapons brought into it. And <laughs> it's just, yeah. <laughs> There's so many issues we could talk into, but really this is a one-time opportunity for New Yorkers, locals, and regulars to possibly enter in this industry or transition from the illicit to the legal and regulated side. Um, now is the only time we're ever going to have to do this as New York. You know, within one year from now, once this all starts going, you know, this, this narrow window here for opportunity, we're just going to be steamrolled with out-of-state brands, multi-state operators, et cetera. So why do I think that this won't be the last discussion we have on this topic? Yeah. It may not be the last discussion this year. No. Yeah. Well, luckily yeah. we now have an expert on board, right, Dave? No. Yeah. Well, I, I try to pretend to be, you know, so. Twenty Seven Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27East.com, and sagharborexpress.com. Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts. 